0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air. Right on, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to 1 and repeated the following Sunday at 11 a.m. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, oh look, have you read this, or have you seen that, and we know you need this, with its cruelly-situated right-at-the-front-so-you-trip-over-at-New-Zealand-New-Releases table, and worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book lovers' Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the Fabulous University Bookshop. Join us for the next hour as we delve into the wonderful world of books and interview local writers. Jenny Powell is a Dunedin writer, poet and performance collaborator who have had the pleasure of interviewing for in the past on Write on the Radio Show. And today I'm delighted to be able to have talk with Jenny about her recently released poetry collection, Meeting Rita. Jenny, welcome to the show. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now Meeting Rita is a collection of poems inspired by the great New Zealand artist Rita Angus. And I mean I've always loved Rita Angus. Uh, and her work, just their striking imagery and those amazing self-portraits that she's done. So how for you did that idea of focusing a collection of poems on Rita Angus come about?
1: The source of inspiration uh, in the beginning came from two events that I went to. Um, one was a production uh, written by Um, written by Dave Armstrong um, and it was a theatre production that was on in Dunedin some years ago now and it depicted Rita's relationship um, that up until that point no one had been particularly aware of her relationship with um, her relationship with Douglas Lilburn, who was a renowned New Zealand composer and professor of music at Victoria. It was only when his letters were released uh, in his papers after a certain amount of time that this relationship became known about. And so Dave um, put together this amazing piece that inspired me and, moved me to a great degree and I knew from that point onwards that I would one day write something about Rita Angus. The other event was at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery during an ID Fashion Week when there was a talk about Rita Angus and her identity and dress style and design. Uh, Being interested in that myself I went along and during that time I uh, had a whole formation of a collection that arrived in my mind. This is quite surprising in one sense but also not in another. The more I think about it now the more unexpected it is because I rely a lot on uh, I guess like most artists an ability to uh, ponder and believe in my creative process to bring forth something that will be worth
0: investigating and writing about. So that must have been, um, yeah, an incredible feeling sitting in that moment in a, <laughs> an ID Fashion Week of all things, <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> and and having this um, this idea and this process come into your head. Once it was there, did it? sort of overwhelm everything else and you just had to follow it immediately?
1: No, I didn't. I was in the middle of a couple of other writing projects and so I had to let it sit for a while, which is okay. Um, And plus I then spent some years reading about Rita Angus viewing her work, visiting some of the places she lived in, um, thinking, thinking about my approach um, until it arrived
0: once again ready to begin to write. Apart from um, well, you've mentioned that connection with Rita in regards to you know enjoying the idea of the, the fashion and the clothing and those sort of strong lines and imagery that she portrayed. How else did you relate to Rita? You know, connect with her. I used to work a long time ago
1: now um, in the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, and so guess my introduction to her, in another sense, came from being in that enriching environment. Her response musically to not just Douglas Lilburn, but other composers, uh, sounded a real chord with me too, um, in that I trained to be a French horn player in my young days in Wellington and did get to see Douglas Lilburn around the place. So he wasn't unfamiliar to me, his music wasn't and his transition and experimentation into electronic music wasn't either. So I appreciated that and their relationship. Um, It seemed to me that there were, I guess, some experiences and character traits that Rita Angus and I might share to a degree that also drew me towards her and I thought well yes I kind of get that I think we
0: could have a conversation about that. I really um, I didn't know that about you until I read your biography in the back of the book that um, or that you had that music background with the the French horn. And so I was fascinated that um, the musicality and Lilburn and Rita's relationship featured strongly in that. So how much did that influence you when you were actually writing the poems and the flow of the poems?
1: Musicality and an underlying rhythm always sing in my head, I guess, when I'm writing. Um, the other thing, I had to limit myself and be a little disciplined to keep myself on track, in that I wanted to write to one of Lilburn's compositions, um but actually, I wasn't writing about Lilburn, I was writing about Rita Angus, so I couldn't in the end and had to back away. I did though. Um, incorporate a piece of music into one of the poems um, which Rita wrote at a time of um, the threat of war and her conscientious objection and, of course, belief in peace. And it relates to um, a, a piece of music by Ralph Vaughan Williams, who was Lilburn's music tutor in his early years. And so this cantata, which is um, a piece of music for orchestra soloists, vocal soloists, and uh, choir, was what Rita based her painting on partly and her own uh, search to get away from... uh, being forced into um, labour as a woman. Um, so all of those things came into play for me and it was the most complicated poem for me to write because on, on one side of the page is the response to the art and on the other side of the page is my response to the piece of music. So. Um,
0: it's, it's a double whammy here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine because you know, you're responding with a written word in a poem to a poem responding to music <laughs> and responding <laughs> to the music at the same time. It's a very round and round spirally circle. <laughs> yes, it, it is, but it, it's a
1: kind of great thing about poetry, I guess. Um, well, I like to investigate these ideas and um, yeah, spread out a bit in my thinking and
0: forming of poetry, so you know creatively, how was it for you to have this focus on one individual with your processes and 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 how you channeled that your creativity
1: uh it it was quite wonderful and Although it focuses on one individual, it um, hopefully is alert to many other aspects of her and her world, so that it it has a wider view. Um, and of course, her paintings are part of that, which broaden the view. Literally, the um, her experiences uh, are. Shared coincidences, it's, uh, it broadened uh, to the point
0: where it had to narrow. <laughs> yes. So for you, um, no, I, I can see this being amazing. It's, a, it's like a mental exercise where you are purposefully um, approaching this project on Rita Angus. Um, how much so how much how did you balance that the mental exercise to the actual heartfelt response to her and her works?
2: Uh,
1: a mental
0: exercise, yes
1: uh, uh, and an emotional exercise for sure something of the heart of my own heart, I guess is in there uh, trying to reach hers, I guess trying to keep. connection of a poetic artistic friendship, if you like, and uh, being mindful of and alert to her philosophy and her way of seeing, uh, her things that affected her greatly in her life, and decisions about to write about these things, to not write about these things. Uh, it, yes, took a lot of um, all of me,
0: I guess, which is what uh, creatively we do. <laughs> and how was it, because, you know, her life was much earlier in the 20th century and, you know, you're sitting here Um, having a response to her work and life in the 21st century. How did that sort of like time difference in the social mores element of things, how did that um, process with you? Well, some things I think don't change,
1: uh, and we're both in New Zealand. Um, Some things remain timeless. Creativity, uh, these deeper links of thinking and perceiving, they don't change. Um, It's like going back to early artists and early writers, we still maintain these links. They have somehow uh, given us an essence of something that if you catch it and understand it and let it in, it remains
0: because it's timeless. You mentioned earlier that you had um, then delved a lot into the life of Rita Angus and reading biographies and going and seeing her her works. So I was curious, process-wise, when some of your poems focus on a particular work or things like that, did you choose a particular image and then write in response to that? Or was it more a case of, oh, I've I've felt something or reacted to this. Let's explore that further.
1: Yes, it was a um, response. There are so many paintings to choose from, but it was a coincidence or a personal response to something that led me to the poem and to
0: focus on a particular artwork. Mm. And... One of the things I did love about this collection is, you know, although you have this focus on Rita Angus, you know, there were so many different sort of like forms of poetry from your beautifully short ones to your ones with interesting um, white space and words on the page. Um, Did those different ways of writing just come naturally in response to the works or did you actively try to have a big variety of forms of poets and writing?
1: They are uh, a response to Rita Angus's art and to me trying to be faithful to the way she worked and um, the gaps in time between things and can't like Space gives us time to think. Um, there's a, a Wanaka poem in there that is, is thinking about the process of painting and her own process of changing things in a painting, often changing. And so the first poem is a, a painting in progress, and at the very end, it recurs in a, in a much slimmer form, with uh, trying to catch the essence of the work and the pared down essential philosophy and practice of Rita Angus as a person, as an and as an artist, which seemed to me the the older she became, the more it was important to her and uh, became her practice as a, an artist and a person. And so the last Monica version recurs near the end of the book to uh, indicate that, that as part of an ageing and as we approach death perhaps we um, we
0: narrow to what matters and in that um, you know when you've said that that's sort of tied into the end of the book and how you feel her progression as an artist and her own processes developed, how did you know as a poet that actually it's time to start wrapping this collection up and find a finishing point for it and how did you Mm. find that finishing point
1: Oh, that was difficult. <laughs> um, there are a lot of um, poems that aren't in the book that live in my workbooks. Um, there had to be a finishing point. And so the there had to be a point at which she and Lilburn parted And that's at the end of the book. And uh, that still makes me really sad to think about it and read it. Um, There was another. I thought that was the end, but it wasn't because she and I hadn't left each other. Um, That poem waited a long time um, until... I went to the Angus house and was shown around the garden, and um, that became the focus of the poem. And there really was a fantail waiting at the end of the visit, and the person who was showing me around pointed that out as the sign of ending, and um, it was very moving. and. Um, that
0: was the place where we left each other and beautiful and apt (laughs) (laughs) yes so now that you know this this beautiful collection is out um, with its glorious cover which is a a photograph of the stunning mural in Wellington that every time I go to Wellington I have to stand and stare at it for a wee while Um, so now that this lovely collection is out Uh, Do you miss Rita? Do you miss writing about her? Or are you still secretly writing on the slide? (laughs) Uh, No. I
1: miss her. I don't miss her because she's, I guess, always with me in the sense of uh, being alert to her art. Um, And because she she is um, a person that you know i I had such close relationship with in a very strange creative way. Um but uh yeah I I th- I think you know that the time was right to stop and um and I'm starting to think about other other things now that I want to write about mm.
0: and what were the um what were the key things that you actually learned from Rita Angus and as her as an artist and a, and a creator that you've been able to take on board for your own creativity?
1: i really think I benefited from um, reading about her personality and um, and that some people did find her difficult as a person and uh, I think okay, so that seems to be part and parcel of um of how she was and her intense belief in having to do the work and in, well, what is important in life? It's a kind of integrity in your work and and letting it not matter that um, other people are highly critical, perhaps, of what you do or think that uh, it, it doesn't fit in. Um, and so that kind of it kind of reinforced uh, my own uh, writing faith i suppose and and thinking about um, you know the, the process of getting older kind of just gives you the opportunity to more and more focus on what matters and i guess out of everything, if we are left by that question, what matters? Then
0: the, the poems have done their job. It's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on the show and talking about um, your fabulous collection, Meeting Rita. I so enjoyed um, reading it and, and equating it to the imagery in my head of her, of her wonderful art. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ah, It is a pleasure to talk about her and to meet with you again. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon. University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, ooh, look, have you read this, or have you seen that, and we know you need this, with its cruelly-situated right at the front-so-you-trip-over-at-New-Zealand-New-Releases table, and worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in book lovers' Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. Garth Cameron is a Dunedin-based author and lawyer and pilot, and he's the author of two non-fiction titles, um, From Pole to Pole, Roald Amundsen's Journey in Flight and the Umberto Nobile in the Arctic Search for the Airship Italia, and he's recently published his first novel, A Single Daring Act. Garth, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, yes, indeed.
0: Now, I'm going to start by reading the back Clubber blurb from your book, just to give our listeners a taste of what A Single Daring Act is about. Conor Travis is the South, American, the South American Republic of Paraguay and the Gran Chaco War in the years 1932 and 1933. In January 1932, criminal lawyer, pilot and traveller Connor Travis is, arrives in Asuncion, the capital of the South American Republic of Paraguay, a country of contradictions, friendly and charming people, but also poverty, coups, revolutions and failed utopias. The nation is on the brink of a bloody war with its neighbour, the Republic of Bolivia. Chance has brought Travis to this place, and a chance encounter with a Paraguayan artist and architect, Sofia Garcia, initiates a chain of events which he learns the exotic history of the remote country, is involved in espionage and a coup, and undertakes a mission that culminates in a single daring act, combat in the air above a remote fort under attack by the Bolivians. Now, this is quite a departure from the non-fiction books that you have previously been writing. So what compelled you to take that leap from writing non-fiction to fiction?
2: Oh, I I thought it was uh, time I took the next step because I think writing readable fiction uh, is an order of magnitude more difficult uh, than writing readable non-fiction. So that's part of it. But the other part was I've had the idea for this as a, setting for a novel uh, since I was a teenager. And in the 60s, I actually saw an early David Attenborough uh, documentary called uh, Zoo Quest in Paraguay. And at about the same time, I read a book by uh, a British aviator who'd been a mercenary with the oblivion. So I became aware of the, um, the context, the war and the place. And of course, the Chaco is... Uh, a desolate region that nobody in his right mind would uh, want to live in, let alone fight over. It's the size of the state of Michigan or um, England, Wales and Scotland combined. So everything seemed to be exotic about the story and the idea has been floating around ever since then.
0: That's quite some time to be brewing a a story from when you're a teenager. Um,
2: Well, it is, is, yes.
0: So how was it then to... um actually start this process of, of getting this idea down on a page and and developing a story around it?
2: Well, I never thought I'd write, and then one day I sat down and did a proposal for a non-fiction book, a uh, book called uh, Trust Me, I'm a Lawyer. And it, that was for um, legal clients uh, to interact more productively with uh, uh, with their lawyers anyway I found uh, that actually got very good reviews and it had modest sales so that gave me the confidence that I could write I wrote the rest of the non-fiction books and as I said I thought this was the next step up and I didn't actually have a detailed plot when I started I just decided that it would um I'd just do it chapter by chapter. So I only had to decide on the first chapter, which suggested the second, which suggested the third.
0: So how much additional research did you have to do on that history and the whole socio-political background um, between Paraguay and Bolivia?
2: Well, an enormous amount, although I did actually um, know quite a bit about it. Um, the amount of information out there is staggering. The commanding general of the Paraguayan army during the war was a guy called Garibia and there was actually a full-length memoir by him uh, about the war in English. So there, you don't have to read Spanish, um, although for short, um, short, you know, short pieces of research, I use Google uh, Translate, which is very good. Although you've got to you've got to know a bit about the topic. Uh, so that you can spot when the translation is ambiguous Um, but on on the whole book I think I probably put in about 1500 hours Um, but my next novel I hope it'll be better but it'll definitely be more efficient because I was all a sort of learning exercise about how to do the research and then how to lay it out on the page and deciding how much factual background there should be and how much fictional stuff to advance the story. Um, And, for example, uh, half a dozen or so of of the characters are real life, and although their interactions with Travis, of course, are fictional, um, I've tried to make them consistent with what I know about uh, their actions and personalities.
0: And, of course, that is one of the... um, the the wonderful things about being an author and one of the terrible things about being an author is is the research rabbit hole and deciding when to stop. Um, So how much actual pleasure did you get out of that that whole research side of things?
2: Oh, well, of course, people people who've never written say, oh, I guess, you know, they assume that the research is the difficult part, Um, but it isn't. Yes, it's difficult, but it's fun. And your point about knowing when to stop, it's quite difficult because the temptation is, no matter how much material you've got, the temptation is to uh, sit down in front of your PC and learn more. So, um, And I wasn't very disciplined about that, so I probably <laughs> spent a few hundred hours. I didn't really have to, and I perhaps I should have spent the, uh, those hundreds of hours um, on some other aspect of the story, but I actually found the plot developing quite easy because, as I said a little bit earlier, um, at the end of a particular chapter, it suggested what would happen next, and I've tried to make it um, entirely plausible. The fictional parts are consistent with what I know of the actual events.
0: Now, of course, in any book, you've got to look at character development, and you know that the. the the characters that are carrying along the story, and you know, Connor Travis is a criminal lawyer and a, a pilot and a traveller, which, which sounds very, very much familiar. Um, did you aim to live vicariously through him?
2: Um, I probably did. Uh, I said to a friend, uh, Travis is me, if he was handsome, resourceful, and brave, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, um, aeroplanes and aviation... Um, features prominently in the story because I'm obviously um, I was a commercial, working commercial pilot and instructor before I went to law school, so the technical aspects are familiar to me. And uh, I've got an unlimited curiosity about the history of aviation. And uh, the material that's available is absolutely staggering. And I'll give you one small uh, example uh, that the Paraguayan Air Force operated a little fighter called a Fiat CR-20 BIS. And as well as uh, 30 or so photographs of these Paraguayan fighters and the uh, mechanics and the pilots who flew them, um, the I, f- I found online quite easily um, a handbook by the manufacturer uh, with detailed photographs of the aircraft so i would even know how it was assembled from a packing case that's the kind of detail that's there
0: which is all gold for a for for a would be author
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of English language histories of Paraguay. I mean, as you know from reading the book, Paraguay is exotic in all kinds of ways. It's it's one of only two uh, landlocked countries in Paraguay, uh, in South America, and uh, Bolivia is the other one. but uh, Paraguay has a history of going to war and suffering enormous losses so that uh, the War of the Seventy, the the Triple Alliance War, Little Paraguay with a population of about 400,000 took on an alliance of Brazil, Uruguay and Argentina and fought it out from 1864 to 1870 and the population was reduced so that... uh, there are only a handful of adult males surviving. And I mention in the book, and it's, uh, it's actually relevant to the dynamics uh, between two characters, that when that war was over in 1870, there were 10 women to every man.
0: Hmm. And that sort of also um, alludes to the the spirit of the Paraguayans you know, in this novel and and what they'd go out there and do too.
2: Yes. Oh, yes, that's, that's absolutely right. And the memory of that war dominates the national consciousness. And all you have to do is to, to uh, realise that is to go on Facebook. And um, there is, uh, uh, there's more than one Facebook page about that war, which finished over 80 years ago. Uh, and one of the Facebook pages, there are posts every day. And I've been watching them for two or three years. And if I want to, every day I could go onto that particular page and learn something new. The important source for the story uh, were the photographs. And again, there's a staggering number of them. And I estimate that I referred to at least a 1,000 photographs, maps, and plans. And there's everything there. To get a feel for the capital at the time that Travis was there, Uh, Somebody I met through Facebook was good enough to send me high-definition scans of several maps, including a street map of the capital from 1928. And I also found on a Facebook page a guidebook, detailed guidebook to uh, Asuncion published in 1932, which was the year that Travis arrived. And the, the material there is so great, I could, if I'd wanted to, uh, I could have walked around the streets of Asuncion uh, in my mind and known exactly what the buildings were and what the street names were and how they related and what kind of view you would get from it. Now, I didn't do that because it didn't move the story forward, but all that information was great um, when I allude to Travis. He's got time on his hands when the ship arrives, so he explores the city. So everything he sees. Uh, he, a traveller in Asuncion in that year would have seen.
0: So the time that you were, period of time that you were writing this novel was of course during COVID time, so you yourself never had opportunity to, to go to Paraguay in person and and do any research, I believe.
2: No, no, that's true, but I would actually probably never visit Paraguay because the weather wouldn't suit me. I like 15 degrees and dry, but if you go to Asuncion at the wrong time of years, it'll be um, 40 degrees centigrade with a 90% relative humidity. If you're you're silly enough to go to the Charco, it's the hottest place in South America. Temperatures of 45 degrees are absolutely common. And just one little insight into this, um, Bolivia had three times the population of uh, Paraguay and was much rich, uh, richer because of uh, mineral resources. So it had more armaments and more sophisticated armaments including tanks. But in several of those battles where the tanks were present they couldn't be used because it was too hot for the crew to be inside the tank as it closed down.
0: <laughs> Not fun. Now you Not are fun, a now, you are a pilot yourself, and you know, this book's set in 1932 and 1933, and you know, the aircraft, of course, are very vintage. Did you have a specific love for vintage aircraft? Um, no, you seem. You all the talk in the novel came out quite affectionate about the Junkers.
2: Oh yes, that's right. Yes, I am. I'm interested in any old airplane, and I, I'm in a room where I've got a wall of books, and I would think that uh, two thirds of them are aviation and uh, some quite esoteric, um, you know, (laughs) sorry, volumes on esoteric subjects, Um, but it's fun. I've been interested in that kind of thing since, um, since I was a kid and I learned to fly when I was 16. I went solo as soon as I was eligible. I had a private license at 17 and by the time I was 22, I had a commercial and a BCAT instructor rating I did a little bit over uh, 3,000 hours in pilot command and uh, some of that flying was uh, on vintage aeroplanes and all vintage gliders. Um, Although I should say that 3,000 hours is one of those totals that's less than a lot but more than a little. And um, commercial pilots really feel they've made it when they have 10,000 or more. And I was talking to a friend the other day and he has... uh, over 25,000 hours in his logbook.
0: Ooh, you've got a little way to go.
2: Oh, yes. Well, I'm I'm uh, about to do a little bit more flying, and uh, that same friend offered me a, um, a fly of, of uh, a vintage aeroplane uh, to have him tiger moth that he's got access to. I actually did a rating on that type when I was 19, so I do have a fair idea of what it's like in an open cockpit in a vintage aeroplane.
0: So, did you write a single daring act for you, for yourself, and your own pleasure, or did you have a specific audience in mind?
2: Well, I I think I wrote it. The kind of novel I wrote, what I've tried to do, is to write the kind of novel that I would read. Something easy to read with um, with a fairly exotic background, uh, some good and interesting history in it, and uh, some. interesting old aeroplanes.
0: Now, you have um, gone about self-published this book. How did you go about that process?
2: Well, um, I had self-published, see, I've had three books published by publishers in New Zealand, uh, Great Britain, and the United States. Um, so, I know how to get published and how to uh, interest a publisher with non-fiction, which of course you do by way of a very carefully drafted proposal. But my understanding has always been that for fiction, uh, firstly you have to have the whole book before you could even approach a publisher, because they need to know whether you can carry a carry a for, um a story from page one to the final page of the book, and I also knew, uh, at least I think I do, that placing a first novel with a publisher is very difficult. So I made the decision to self-publish. As far as the process goes, um, finalizing the manuscript, which I did after th- after I'd finished a third draft. And it had been professionally copy-edited, and I'd incorporated the suggestions, and it had been professionally proofed. But that was really only halfway, and I elected to publish it on Amazon. So, of course, having a final manuscript, I then had to turn it into a book that you could read hardcover, or you could read as Kindle ebook. And I found that to be very challenging, and I learned a lot. Doing it, and of course, um, some aspect. I, I knew that some parts of it had to be done professionally, otherwise, um, the book wouldn't be a credible thing to sit on a shelf and expect people to buy. So, the cover image, which I'd carefully thought out, was uh, done by a professional illustrator called Steve Hyen in Australia, and he was a pleasure to work with. And we toed and froed on that and got the image right. And I deliberately uh, designed the image so that it would wrap around the cover uh, so that it would be attractive at the front and on the back uh, I'd be able to have text put in there. And then I prepared all the wording and got the uh, barcode and the international standard book number and all that kind of thing and then had a graphic designer of... uh, Catherine from uh, Better Creative and the Octagon and uh, she did a great job actually designing it. So the cover itself was two stages. Firstly, the illustration and secondly, the design. And um, I'm pretty, you know, satisfied that it looks as good as it can. Uh, and what I know from the little short books that I self-published is it's easy to get a book out there, but it's difficult to get a book out there that looks professional. Mm. So it was very satisfying, and I've, I've actually placed it with a couple of uh, retailers uh, in Dunedin. Of course, they would only put it on their shelves, but the book looks good. Yeah. So it's also a matter of personal pride. I wouldn't want to have my name associated with something that doesn't look good. And the the interior itself, uh, there's a lot of work turning the manuscript into a formatted um, well, formatted text that again looks like it was published by Penguin Random House something like that and I spend hundreds of hours uh, doing that every time I do it I learn a little bit more so with my next novel which I'm planning at, just at the planning stage I'm sure that I'll be absolutely, uh, be able to go to a final manuscript quicker and better than last time and I'll be able to turn that into uh, a good-looking book better and quicker than last time.
0: Quite a commitment, isn't it?
2: <laughs> oh, it is, absolutely. Yep. And um, But also, I, I am going to um, do the rounds of the publishers and try to get a publisher to pick up my second novel. And one reason is that all the time uh, with the self-publishing Process, uh, I think, would be better spent thinking about and writing another novel. And also, uh, Amazon isn't quite as good as it's cracked up to be. There's a few things about Amazon that I that I, you know, didn't know, um, because I'd always imagined that I'd self-publish it. I'd get it reviewed. It would be out on Amazon, and if people liked it, it would uh, produce a passive income, because I do hope that the book will sell enough so that it was worth writing it. Um, Yeah, (laughs) the self-publishing thing is something you could talk about for hours and hours, and um, it's great to be able to do it, because you don't need a publisher, but then it's a very demanding exercise where you've got to learn a lot about a lot of things, including a lot of technical things.
0: Now, writing a book and publishing and self-publishing is one thing, but then you have to find your audience and then be able to find you. So how did you approach that side of things?
2: Oh, right. Well, (laughs) I don't know whether I thought it about in detail, but the main thing was I had to... Before I started, I had to imagine the audience, and I imagine the audience would people be people like me, who um, like easy to read historical stuff with a bit of uh, an, an interesting background. So, uh, we... so that's really I, I, I didn't. I, I just had to make up in my mind what the target was, and the target I best know are people like me. <laughs>
0: So what recommendations would you give to you know would-be authors looking at um, you know, writing and self-publishing their work? Best piece well, of advice?
2: Uh, best piece of advice is um, recognising how difficult each part of the process is and recognising the amount of time that you're going to have, put, uh, have to put in and also with the first novel Not many people have bestsellers with their first novels, and I've I've looked at a lot of writers because I read a lot of um, writing by writers about the authorship process. Um, And uh, generally speaking, even the ones who... uh, There's a guy called Ernest Gann who's not much remembered now, but he was a successful novelist for about 40 years, and he wrote a lot before he... Uh, produced a novel that was not only picked up, but that sold well. And I've actually part of it. One of the bits of advice I would uh, I would give to a would-be author is to look at uh, some of his or her favourite novels and go through them and see how they're structured. For example, um, points of view, um, flashbacks, is it in the first person, is it in the third person, Is it eye of God? Does the uh, narrator know about everything? You know, like the thoughts of all the characters, that kind of thing. And it's surprisingly complicated because if you pick up a novel and you read it and you're entertained and you think it's a good novel, it's easy to think that it must be easy to write, but it's not.
0: (laughs) So what have you enjoyed most about this whole experience of writing this book and, and publishing it?
2: Right. Um, I think uh, certain um, parts of the process stand out. One is how much fun the uh, research was, because I actually probably know as much or more about old Paraguay as a lot of people who live there, Uh, because there are people who live in a place and they aren't interested in the history, so they never learn it. So... Um, And one of the things I'm going to do when I find out how to send it to is I'm going to send a copy of the novel to the commander of the Paraguayan Air Force. (laughs) I'd be very surprised if he wasn't at least intrigued by it because, for example, there's a cover painting on the cover of uh, a type of airplane, um, a fighter, that uh, the Paraguayan Air Force only ever had five of. And I think it will surprise him that an author who lives in New Zealand, who doesn't speak Spanish and has never been to Paraguay, uh, would want to write that kind of novel and has done so.
0: (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you, Garth, so much for coming on the show today and talking about your novel, A Single Daring Act. Um, It's been a pleasure talking.
2: Yes, indeed. Thanks very much.
0: Well, that is our show for this month. Thank you for joining me and my guest Jenny Powell talking about her poetry collection, Meeting Rita, and Garth Cameron and his novel, A Single Daring Act. Join me again next month for another hour in that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy plenty of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just smell those books and breathe atmosphere with its staff who entice me with oh look! Have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this with its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table and worst of all, worst of all with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner The University Bookshop is evil You have been warned